0: You have your Bible open to Acts chapter 9. I wonder if you ever, when you were in grade school, experienced Career Day. When I was, uh, we had one in high school, I can remember. Uh, I was a little more focused by that time, but the one that always sticks out in my mind was when I was 12 and my little frontal lobe was not quite clicking on all cylinders yet. I could not make up my mind what uh, I wanted to be for Career Day. It was a dress-up day, dress up day, dressed like the one you want to be. And so I had, uh, let's see, I started out as a doctor, and when that stopped impressing the girls, uh, in sixth grade, I moved to uh, a lawyer, and I had the white coat on, you know, so eventually I think ended up as a butcher. Um, I mean, whatever worked, at some point definitely was like a Don Johnson, uh, Miami Vice cop, you know, that was the kind of coat I had on, uh, rocking the roll-up on the pants leg, uh, back in the back in the '80s, uh, I could not figure that out though. As time progressed, uh, had to make a decision when it gets to, when it come to college. You know, it's time to make a, de- a decision, declare your major. They would say, and so I chose uh, computer science. I didn't want to have to struggle in life with money or anything. At the time, computers were growing faster, just like they are now. It hasn't slowed down technology and but the Lord put calculus in my way, um, <laughs> little holy roadblock, if you will. Um, <clears throat> made it through, and and I'll confess that was with the C. But don't 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 dog me because C stands for courageous. Uh, <laughs> then I switched over to kinesiology, sports management. And wanted to be a coach. Um, really, my life was impacted by my high school football coach and the coaches that worked with him on his staff and. Uh, Someday to be an athletic administrator, just it seemed like the right thing to do, and, and it wasn't because kinesiology was P.E., like, right? that's the easy way out of college. I begged to differ. It was a pretty tough degree, but the Lord put amber in my life and another holy roadblock and called me to <laughs> ministry. And there are some folks here this morning from the very first church I served in as a youth pastor when I was at A&M, so they can, they can um, back that up that God used her. Uh, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. <clears throat> but we look at a man by the name of Saul, and just before we go any further, I'm going to call him Paul. I'm going to call him Saul. It's the same guy. Same, uh, same guy. He's got multiple names because there's different languages happening in the New Testament, Um, So please don't think I'm speaking of someone else. If I accidentally call him Paul, um, I'm speaking of Saul, because in Luke chapter 9, Luke introduces him or reintroduces him uh, to us as a man by the name of Saul. I want to start with this verse, though, out of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, because I think it describes Saul and it describes many of us. Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. With that in mind, if you would stand as I read from starting in Acts chapter 1, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I'm going to read the first three verses of chapter 8 to reacquaint ourselves with who Saul is, and then we'll move to chapter 9 and read the first nine verses of chapter 9. Saul agreed with putting him to death. He's talking about young Stephen, okay? On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He went into house after house, dragged off men and women, and put them in prison. Okay, chapter nine, verse one. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any women, men or women, who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Let's pray together. Father, your name and your renown is the desire... Of our hearts. Father, your name is glorious and powerful. You are a gracious, merciful, and patient with us. And Father, we stand amazed at times at how your mercy continues just as the water and the waves come ashore. Father, we thank you for hunting us down and bringing us into your kingdom through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those that have not yet yielded, that have not yet surrendered to Christ Jesus in faith. Father, we pray that you would, as you call them this morning, that they would respond and. Father, we also thank you for the great privilege of joining the hunt, that we can show others their need for their sin to be forgiven, telling of the good news of salvation and new life in Jesus. Father, I thank you that in my life, you have arrested my heart and my life. And I thank you for the others that will come along. Father, you know our hearts this morning. I pray as you draw in the lost, again, that they would respond by faith to your call. Father, for those that have already responded and surrendered, Lord, I pray that this time their hearts would be strengthened and encouraged to be faithful in obedience. And Lord, as I pray often, what we know not teach us, what we have not provide for us, and what we are not, make us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we're introduced to a man by the name of Saul. And what we see in Saul's life is nothing short of an epic transformation. Acts chapter 8 provides just a little bit of insult, uh, insight into to Saul's hatred of the church, his hatred of the gospel, and certainly his hatred of anything having to do with Jesus. Saul had overseen the stoning of young Stephen, who was preaching the name of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. In verse 3, we read that Saul was ravaging the church, not just picking on them, not just giving them a hard time, Not suing them or anything, but literally dragging them through the streets, ravaging the church. Physical harm to the church. House after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. And then whatever the court had decided, giving his okay to that decision. At this point in Saul's life, his mission is to stop the gospel at any cost. Stop anything having to do with Jesus Christ. We would call Paul uh, Saul the, the hunter. He was hunting down Christians. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Now Saul was still breathing threats, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He hasn't slowed down. We had a little bit of an intermission with Philip's ministry in Acts chapter 8, and now we're back to what's happening in the life of the church. The, the gospel has spread. It's spread out to a city named Damascus, Pretty good journey from Jerusalem by foot in those days. He's still intent on causing harm to the church, so much so that he, he got letters from the Sanhedrin, from the religious authorities in Jerusalem to carry along with him that he would get to Damascus. And if he could find any Christians, he would have the authority to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. So we're calling them arrest warrants. He's no longer content with just dealing with the Christians in Jerusalem, but as the gospel is spread, so is Paul's hatred, so is his disgust and his intent to destroy the church and the gospel. He is determined to put an end to anything Christianity. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, this is much later in Paul's life. At this point in Acts chapter 26, he's years into his ministry now. His life was changed by Christ, we'll get to that in a moment, but later on in his ministry, he himself is on trial before King Agrippa. This is before he'll make it to Rome, but in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, this is his testimony, official testimony. He's standing in front of court and the king, and he says this, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem. And I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I was in agreement with them. Saul is a murderer. Maybe he didn't throw the stone, but a guilt by association. He agreed his heart was okay with the chief priest and the religious authorities putting death sentences on those who followed Jesus Christ. You understand how much hate you've got to be in to get to that place that you want to kill somebody for their belief. There's a lot of hate there. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of sin in Saul's life. Verse 11, in all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme since I was terribly enraged at them. And then he says, I pursued them even to foreign cities. No doubt what he has in mind is what we're reading about in Acts chapter 9 on his way to Damascus. This man was a callous and cold, bitter man. And what he was doing, he thought was right. He thought he was in the right. He thought, because he's a Pharisee. Pharisees are religious men. They're trained in the law. He thought he was taking out these people who were also blaspheming the name of God by following the one named Jesus, claiming to be the Son of God. He was, they accused him of blasphemy. He was not guilty of that. He was speaking the truth. And so he's after this, in his hatred, going after those who belong to the way. I love that phrase, those who belong to the way, the way that is Christ. This man is a rebel with a cause. He's rebelling against the very plans and purposes of God, the God he claimed to be serving, the God he was trying to help vindicate by bringing to a supposed justice those he thought were living in sin and blaspheming his name. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, There is Paul's testimony to the Ephesians about what state we're in before Christ, and he says that we are living as a child of disobedience. That is exactly where Paul is as we open Acts chapter 9. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. He also says we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. This is where Paul is before he meets Christ. Beloved, this is where we all are before we meet Christ. We are no different than Saul. As he is on this journey, He is exactly what he writes in verse 1, dead in his trespasses against God's will, God's purpose, God's plan, his direction, and his sin, carrying out that temptation. He is dead in his sin. There is no life in Saul's heart. There's nothing there. And he's after the church, persecuting them, dragging them off so that they could face death. But listen, when I say something like, we're all no different than him. I mean, we're not chasing people down, persecuting them and having them stoned. How could I possibly be any worse, than, uh, worse or the same as, as Saul? Well, all you've got to do is tell a lie. You don't have to be a murderer. Just tell a lie. Put your choice before God's choice. Put your will before God's will. You're guilty of idolatry, of pride, selfishness. I mean, I can go down the list anything. In fact, we're born into a sin nature. We're no different than Saul. And I hope that you'll understand that you don't have to be a murderous, slanderous terrorist like Saul is in this moment to be guilty of sin, to be what uh, Saul was in verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sin. Isaiah 53 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. That's each one of us. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have fallen short. We have missed God's intended target, which is the center of his will, which is his glory. Right there, we fall short. We don't even hit the target. But something happens along the road to Damascus. And while Saul is dead in his sin, he is determined to arrest Christians and eradicate the church and stop the gospel and stop anything it having to do with the name of Jesus, it is Jesus who arrested Saul. This is that but God moment that Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, when he wrote, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love he, has had, he had for us. Right? So here we are. He's written, I have, we are dead in our sin and in our trespasses. There's not a lot of hope there. Then he hits verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy. Do you think, I do, that in that moment when he wrote verse 4, that he's thinking of this moment right here on the road to Damascus when the, the glory of God shone around him and Christ spoke to him and appeared to him and radically, epically changed his life. I think that's what he's thinking when he writes, but God, who is rich in mercy. While he thought he was doing the work of God, Saul is, in fact, following the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, the only person that could possibly have changed his life, the one who is known as the way, the sovereign grace of God, intervened in his life, and his name was Jesus. And as he's breathing out these murderous threats, God showed Saul that Jesus is a wonderful, wonderful. Merciful, gracious Savior and Redeemer. He he showed Saul that the resurrection was true, that everything Jesus had said was true. This man's life is about to change course. Just like some of the Old Testament prophets who were called by God by name, this man's life is about to change course. He's going to undergo an epic transformation. Epic, as an adjective, is <coughs> defined as extending beyond the usual or ordinary, especially in size or scope. This man's life is radically changing. That blinding light in Acts 26 where he's given his testimony he says there that that light was brighter than the noonday sun now we have someone in our midst this morning that if you go out and do this she's going to be overwhelmed this week so don't go out and look at the sun but if you did you would go out there and you would have maybe maybe half a second before your eyeballs hurt And if you dare to go any longer, she's really gonna be overwhelmed, so really don't do this. But if you go any longer, you're gonna lose your sight, right? Thank you. That's her. (laughs) She might appreciate the business, but for good things, not bad things. All right? But Paul describes this light as brighter than the noonday sun. God's glory, his presence and his glory is brighter than the son he created? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And it took his sight. His transformation is happening as his entire worldview is demolished. Jesus takes this violent, arrogant, prideful man and he calls his name and he says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, sir? I don't even know who you are. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And here we can simply say, when you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting Jesus. That's his bride. Don't mess with her. He will fiercely defend her. We sung about it already this morning. But can you imagine how he felt? He felt. The Lord that is speaking to him now is the Lord of the people he's chasing after, the ones he's trying to pursue and arrest. That Lord, the Lord Jesus, instead has pursued him and caught him red handed and arrested him. The one whom he thought was a fraud is actually quite real and infinitely more powerful and glorious than he could have ever imagined, so much so that he is stunned and blinded by his glory. The hunter was the hunted. (coughs) Excuse me. That strong and arrogant man is now a humble, blind, weak, powerless. He's so powerless, he's being led by the hand into the city that he was marching to with orders to arrest Christians. Now he's being led by the hand by the men who are traveling with him. Depending on someone else for the next step. Guess what, when you follow Jesus, you'd better be depending on him for the next step every time. And though Saul was blind, he had seen the risen Christ. He, he testifies to that in 1 Corinthians 15. He had seen the risen Christ on this, on this road. and He knows that Jesus is no fraud. He knows now that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and he'll spend the rest of his life proclaiming that name, preaching that name, trying to, to, trying to convince others that Jesus is real. Friends, and that's exactly what we're doing today, trying to convince you that Jesus is real and that he loves you, and he gave his life for you on the cross, but he didn't just die for you, he was raised to life on the third day, and he'll raise your life from the the ashes. From an epic transformation comes this epic commission on Saul's life. We move into the next part of the story, and Verse 10, there was a disciple there in Damascus named Ananias. You might remember Ananias from Acts chapter 5. This is a different Ananias for that. Ananias of chapter 5 is no longer with us. You might remember he lied to the Holy Spirit and the Lord took care of that. This is a different Ananias. God calls out to Ananias, and I love his response. He says, here I am, Lord. You open your life up to a yes, Lord, and a here I am, Lord. Your assignments are gonna be tough. There are gonna be assignments that will lead you to depend on God more than you did before. they are gonna be assignments that will call you to trust in him more than you did the day before. As the Lord calls on the church we find in this passage a moment of discipleship and what will be a time of discipleship for Saul. Reading through it, you kind of read through it, it might feel like a like a lightning round, but there's there's quite some time later Paul will put a time frame on this for about 3 years of his life. But he didn't he didn't wait 3 years before he started preaching and proclaiming. He started that immediately. But right away, Ananias is told to go to the place where Saul is praying. He's praying. He, he can't see anything, Ananias. He's praying. Oh, and Ananias, as, I know you're going to be hesitant because, like, yeah, we get it. You know who this man is. In fact, Ananias says, Lord, we know, I know who this is. He's got arrest warrants for people like me. I don't want to go. You know, like, this, this is not something I really wanted to sign up for. But he says, wait a minute. He's praying, and I already told him you're coming. So you might as well go. He's ready for you. Oh, great. Like that? Would that make you feel better? Like the guy that's coming to arrest, he knows you're coming because I told him? But Ananias knows the grace of God. He knows what's happened. He knows that Jesus has intervened in this man's life and that this man has undergone a radical, epic transformation. Jesus says to, this, to Ananias, he says, this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name down goes the prosperity self-centered religion that we call and we see in the Western American church. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. From dead in sins to alive in Christ, from persecuting the name, that's Saul's plan, to preaching the name that is God's plan. God's plan is to take the unlikeliest of men and spread the gospel to the nations, the unlikeliest of women, like Lottie Moon, to nations far, far, far away to spread the gospel. And the rest of the New Testament bears out his ministry and how faithful Paul was as as he writes 13 of these letters to the churches. Yes, that day, Saul's life was radically and epically transformed and commissioned to serve the one he was hunting down to eradicate. Only something like that can be done by Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon Saul as Ananias lays his hands on him, and his eyes are open. I love the imagery. As Paul was trying to arrest and lay his hands on Christians, it is the Christians who lay their hands upon him. Not out of hatred, but to receive the spirit of God. The one who was an enemy of the way has now become a brother of the way. Only, only Christ can cause that kind of transformation and bring that into a, a man or a woman's life. And almost immediately in chapter 9, verse 20, we see Paul now proclaiming Jesus by saying he is the son of God and he grows stronger And he proves, he's trying to prove to his Hebrew brothers that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He'll spend the rest of his life on that path, proclaiming the name of Jesus. Friend, what has happened in Paul's life, simply call it an epic conversion. And it still happens today. I think it's the greatest miracle that we'll ever witness in our life, this conversion from being dead in sin to alive and with Christ. Paul gives us a testimony, a glimpse into this testimony in in his letter to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 12, he wrote to, to young Timothy. He says to Timothy, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly, listen, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me the worst of them Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's conversion is an example of this saving grace and mercy that we find in Jesus Christ. Let me run through this list quickly. First, in verse 14, we understand salvation is by God's grace and God's grace alone. The grace of our Lord overflowed. Now, I could come up with 95 reasons why that's important. And I thank God for men like Luther because he changed the course of the church in the Reformation. Salvation is by God's grace alone. By the grace of God, Paul wrote in in chapter 15 of Corinthians, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, certainly Jesus could have taken Paul out. He could have taken Paul or Saul. He could have taken him out, but he didn't. He showed him grace, unmerited favor. You need to understand and remember, nothing Saul did that day caused him to deserve what Jesus did for him. The blindness, oh, what a horrible... Uh, what what a horrible thing to be struck with. Friend, that's God's grace. He withheld what Paul deserved. Do you understand that? Paul, like us in our sin, we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. That's what Paul or Saul deserved. The blindness is an act of God's grace. Changed his life. Paul wrote in verse 15, I am the worst of them. That's why we sing about songs like like Amazing Grace. God's grace is sometimes, it's it's unthinkable. How can we define such a grace? Yet he gives it in Christ Jesus, and he gives what we do not deserve. Salvation is by God's grace and God's grace alone. Secondly, we understand salvation involves a life-changing encounter with Jesus, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. I receive mercy. The grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He had that life-encountering moment with Jesus Christ. Sometimes these moments are big and dramatic like, like Saul. Or in Acts chapter 16, where you have the jailer that's about to kill himself because there's a huge earthquake and all the door, jail cell doors are open, and he, he's at a loss. He, he just knows he's going to be sentenced to death, and yet, out of the darkness, Paul and Silas say, hey, don't do that. We're still here. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But just before those two big dramatic moments, there's Lydia, just quiet. Here's the gospel and believes. Either way, it involves a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Always involves Jesus. Third is this. The salvation involves a surrendering of your life to Jesus Christ. Friend, he is Lord. Jesus showing himself to Saul is Jesus showing him the truth. Saul, the resurrection is true. Everything I said was true. When Jesus said, I'll tear down this building and rebuild it in three days, talking about the temple, that was true, but he wasn't talking about the building, he was talking about himself. Jesus blinded him, which brought Saul to a place of dependence upon others, just like he would now have to depend on Christ. All of that to point Saul to understand that he, Saul, is no longer in charge. No longer, Saul, are you going to be a Pharisee among Pharisees? No longer are you going to go ravage my church? Now you're going to go salvage lives. Surrendering implies that you give up all rights to the conqueror. All hail King Jesus. He is Lord. Now Saul knows that. And when you come to faith in Jesus, you need to remember that Jesus is Lord. Fourth, salvation brings you out of darkness into his light, the light of life. Paul says there in that little passage in Timothy, so that in me the worst of them Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example of those who believe in him for eternal life. That God, that that Christ would, would demonstrate his patience, his grace, his mercy, his forbearance. That God who said let light shine out of darkness would shine into our lives to give the light of knowledge of God and glory in the face of Jesus Christ that he would shine through us. And the only way he shines through us is that that darkness flees when his light comes. Fifth, salvation is not dependent upon sincerity. If Paul had lived his life according to 21st century belief, he would have been all right, according to some. Why? Because he sincerely believed he was doing right. So many today would say, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just be sincere. Put the right thing on social media with the right hashtag. And if you're really sincere, put it in all caps. Maybe a little emoji on there to show how you're sincere. Like, just be sincere. The problem is, on the road to Damascus, Saul and all of his sincere beliefs was going to hell. Salvation is not dependent upon your sincere beliefs that you hold dear in your life. Salvation is dependent on faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. Sixth, God saves the worst of us. And just before you go putting your neighbor in that category, and all those sweet little children coming to your door, ringing the doorbell tonight, making your dogs bark, you better put yourself there first. We are the worst. We are all the worst. Seven, salvation brings about a new purpose as you become a new person in Christ. You see that in Paul's life, he was radically changed. Jesus told his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Saul is sent, Peter is sent, John is sent. Church, when you leave this morning, you are sent. Every time we walk out those doors, We are sent back into the mission field of God to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. And with a great Savior comes a great calling on our life, to be used as an instrument in the hands of God to reach a world that is lost and dying and to help fulfill his mission. Eighth, salvation brings you into a new family. Welcome to the church, warts and all. It brings you into a new family. Like I said, Saul went from persecutor to brother. You can catch that in Acts chapter 9. Finally, when it's all said and done, each week and then looking forward, salvation brings us to worship our king. Listen again to what Paul says at the end of that testimony to Timothy He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Salvation brings us to worship our king in this life and fully then. And I wonder this morning if you have repented of your sin, surrendered to Jesus Christ in faith, having received salvation by God's grace. Have you made that decision to follow Jesus? Have you made the decision to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ? This morning you have that opportunity. If you're watching on Facebook, please reach out to us, put a message on there, email us, call the church office and let us know. But if you're here in person this morning, in just a moment our praise team's gonna come back and we're gonna sing one more song of worship as a closing act of worship this morning. And, and I wanna invite you to come down and let me pray with you. Let me lead you to the one who gave his life for you. And if not during that moment, catch me after we're done, please, before you go. Church, if you have already made that decision and you are in Christ, how's your service this morning? How's it been this week since the last time we were together? You still checking your feet? Are they still beautiful? Go out and be used by God this morning as he sent Jesus, so he sends us.